Hello, I think we're live on Aetherius Radio Live. Welcome to Aetherius Radio Live, the hour of truth with Richard Lawrence and Chrissy Blaze. Hello, Richard. Mark, hello, hello. I think we're live now then. That's good. Great. Um, Mark, may I first of all um, introduce you, because you, you haven't appeared on Aetherius Radio Live before, I don't think. No, that's correct. It's a pleasure to have you on, on this show. Um, just so the and listeners it's a know... To be here. Good, thank you. Chrissy um, couldn't be here on the show today. She has some other unavoidable commitments she has to carry out. And so I'm delighted to say, though, that her replacement today is Mark, Mark Bennett. And Mark is a apart from being a very close friend of mine, is an international director of the Ethereum Society. He's our youngest international director by a long chalk, as you will see if you see his photograph on his website, which I'm sure you'll be giving details of later, Mark. Um, As well as that, he is um, an author. He he co-authored with me two books, God's Guides and Guardian Angels and Prayer Energy, neither of which would have been published, I must say, or completed without his fantastic help. And I think God's Guides, which received an award, uh, much of the credit of that goes to Mark for the, for the way he, he wrote so much of that book in cooperation with myself. Uh, he also has written many other articles. He's a regular speaker. He works full-time for the Ethereum Society, um, he is uh, highly educated. He got a first from a, a big university here, Cambridge, and uh, yet he, he sort of combines. It's an unusual combination that, that is quite rare, I find, in the body-mind-spirit movement of combining intellectuality with spirituality, but it's extremely pow- powerful when you can find it. So it's a pleasure, Mark, to have you on Ethereum Radio Live. Thank you. Well, that, that is certainly more than kind, Richard. Thank you very much. And, <laughs> and Mark uh, for the v- graciously agreed to conduct the interview, so I'll, I think I'll hand over to you at that point, Mark. Thank you, Richard. Uh, well, I don't think that Richard needs much of an introduction. Richard is obviously an international best-selling author and uh, has been Executive Secretary of the Ethereum Society for Europe for many years, many decades, I believe now it is, actually. Um, but what some of you may not know is how close Richard was to Dr. George King, who is, of course, the subject of today's interview. Um, Richard spoke to Dr. King literally almost every day, sometimes more than once a day, for a period of, what was it, 20, 30 years, Richard? It was 20 years. Mm -hmm. 20 years. Mm. Over 20 years, and spent a lot of time working uh, directly with him, by his side, both in England and in America, and even in other parts of the world as well, I believe. Um, and uh, Richard has one of, the, one of the greatest privileges, I think, that anyone could ever have, and that is that he was also a close friend of Dr. King. He was more than just a, a follower, uh, more even than just a disciple. Uh, he was someone who I believe that uh, Dr. King enjoyed being with and uh, really valued as a a trusted confidant and someone to seek advice from uh, on this strange world on which we live. So I'd like to ask now, Richard, if you could, um, especially for the benefit of those viewers, those listeners who may not have heard of Dr. King or may not know too much about him, just give us a brief background as to who Dr. King was, where he came from, 
and how he came to be doing what he did. Certainly. Um, if I was to get to the real roots of where I believe he came from, it wouldn't be uh, even from this earth, and I think we'll probably go more into that later. But in terms of his, as it were, his incarnation, and I must say, uh, in the Aetherius Society, we don't believe in a, in a one and only Son of God, and we don't believe in a one and only divine incarnation, or even the incarnation of God itself as being possible. But I do believe, as others in the Aetherius Society believe, that he was a God incarnate. Uh, and when he came here, he was born into very humble uh, conditions in England. He was born in, uh, for those who know England, in the West Country, in an area, a county called Shropshire, but spent much of his childhood in the north of England and in the in, in the sort of very hardy regions of northern North Yorkshire, if people know that at all. It's a it's a county which is renowned for blunt speaking um, and honest speaking, straight from the shoulder, as they say up there. And he carried that through his whole life, actually. He, he, although he spent most of his mission in America, that's in terms of residing in America, he always kept his, his kind of Yorkshire spirit and was very proud of that. Uh, he kind of used that as part of his persona. And I, and I can explain more what I mean about used it, if people wish to know. But he, he developed it as a, as a way of expressing this direct very candid, very honest, very truthful persona that people who knew him always associated with him. You didn't have to sort of wonder what he was thinking or where you stood or you knew. He made sure you knew. There was no behind the back talking or anything like that. It was straight up to your face, straight up, and that was one of the characteristics of that particular part of England in those days. But it was a very, very difficult childhood from a physical point of view and to boot he had physical ailments he was a poorly child and he suffered a very debilitating illness um, as a boy which could have been fatal actually and he spent much of his childhood um, dealing with that um, but what was clear and perhaps one of the things I would like to stress about him is that very early on his focus was on the inner planes, the spiritual planes, although he handled the practical physical world brilliantly, was very practical, feet-on-the-ground person, could not only drive a car but repair a car, for example. He was a very practical man who, who studied technology and so on. He was essentially focused from his childhood on the inner planes. And I think the experiences, I've had the pleasure, as you know, Mark, recently, of working on research for his biography, which is underway at the moment. And the accounts from his childhood, I think, as far as I know anyway, are unique. The inner plane experiences he was having uh, in his teens and his um, 20s were quite, and early 30s before the Aetherius Society was founded were absolutely remarkable. Fascinating stuff, fascinating. I, I very much look forward to reading this biography. Uh, which well, has, you'll has be doing more than that, I years. hope. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be editing it, I think. Um, now, you, you mentioned, um, of course, that uh, Dr. King was, you know, when I asked where was he from, that's, of course, a, a sort yes. of um, double-edged question. Yes. The title of this interview is, I believe, Dr. George King, Cosmic Avatar. So could you perhaps explain 
what a cosmic avatar is, please. Yes, and I think this is what we owe an enormous debt to Dr. King for explaining this, because there have been so many mysteries and so many terms. I mean, an avatar, I believe, is a Hindu-derived term, which essentially means a divine incarnation. And you have this tradition in many cultures, including in ancient Greece, of gods coming to earth and taking on mortal form. And, of course, you have in the Christian tradition an idea which I think started out as a son of God, uh, being a symbolic thing, not an actual thing, not a one and only son, or God, as it later became, two or three hundred years later, in, you know, exactly equal, as it were, to Jesus, as the same persona, and all the things that developed in Orthodox Christianity. But this idea of a, cosm uh, of a divine incarnation transcends many cultures and many traditions, and Dr. King, of course, explained that what it really is, is a cosmic being, be it Sri Krishna, be it the Master Jesus, be it the Lord Buddha, uh, or be it Lao Tzu, or uh, Confucius, or a whole range, Sri Patanjali and others, were beings who took on human form, um, but they actually came from another world, and they were incarnated, in most cases anyway, through the womb of, a, of an earth woman, and in some cases there are accounts of those births being virgin births, um, in order to perform a mission here of one kind or another. It might be a teaching mission, it might be some kind of other mission, but they came to Earth, and these are cosmic avatars. They're beings from other planets who, in order to take upon the karma of this world, uh, had to be born through the womb of, uh, of an Earth woman and then they live an incarnation. They are gods, if you like, in human form. So, um, I mean, that, that gives rise to many, many questions. But I mm. think um, before moving on to that, I'd like to ask something which not many people on Earth can answer. And that is, what is it like to actually be in the physical presence of someone from another world well it's um, when I first uh, came into the company of Dr. George King it was awesome and I have to say and wrongly so by the way a little frightening in a way um, you know it shouldn't be because how can you be frightened of someone who is all love so it's silly but that's perhaps human conditioning but it was certainly awesome, and one could be very nervy, and, and so on. And I, I started to overcome that, and then I also started to realize that this wasn't, which is more important, at all helpful to him. And so one had to focus uh, really on him as he was, and one couldn't always remember what he really was because it would be too much for the, you know, the, the brain, as it were, to cope with, while at the same time pouring him a drink or having a chat or, you know, performing any number of functions with him. And in my case, under certain conditions anyway, uh, having to give certain kinds of opinion, uh, which might not even be in line with what he was thinking at the time. Of course, he'd soon put me right if he wanted to. Um, and so on, and you couldn't focus too much on you know, who he really was or you'd never say anything and you'd be completely useless to him. I sort of went through various phases in my 
journey, if you like, as a, uh, becoming a disciple of his gradually, which was, you know, from starting off by I'm a follower of his and then becoming, um, you know, perhaps more of a friend of his and, and realizing it's not so much about following him as helping him. And so I suppose one learned then, and one could take it too far, and I'm sure I did on occasions, uh, of being over-familiar, and one can push the limit. He was the sort of person, though, luckily, Mark, who, if you did do that, if you did get over-familiar, or if you did be you know, lacking in the respect that you should have shown, he'd soon put you straight. And, I, and it was better for him and easier for him to do that than to some, have somebody around him who was too deferential, too respectful and wouldn't say boo to a goose and wouldn't really help him too much. But it certainly was an awesome thing. And I, I think one of the interesting things and one of the great things and the great privileges was you were with someone who knew. He knew what he was. I mean, a lot of, you know, number of people, including... People like yourself, Mark, uh, who committed yourself and is a, a very close follower of his now, even though he's not physically alive, and that's, that's a very big thing. You know, you, you completely believe it, but, and I completely believe it, but he knew it, and he lived it 24 hours a day. So this rubbed off on you. And the other thing I'd say is that he was uh, fascinated. It was fascinating. It was tragic in one way, it was inspiring in another way, but it was also fascinating to have that enigma of a, of a, of a being who was limited by human flesh and, the, and, and, the, and the, the sort of manhood, if you write, the humanity of his situation, but also was a godlike being. And there was always this mystery about him, about, you know, which... Is it? You know, is it the man? Is it the master? Is it the avatar? Because they were all blended into one, and, and sometimes he was in, in, under a certain degree of limitation, and sometimes he clearly wasn't. And I think he was also fascinated by that, by his own condition, if you like. And he was always trying to get to the, I felt, to the bottom of it all, and to the bottom of what he really was uh, as well. He knew, but it was still intriguing. And, um, of course, he was wrestling with tremendous karmic limitation about what he could do and couldn't do. And that, too, he had to wrestle with because he was bound by human karma. You know, he couldn't just get up and perform the miracles and the things that he would like to have done, and yet he did perform miracles. So it, it was a very enigmatic situation, if you like. And how, how do you think he coped with that? I think he coped with it, and this may sound like a platitude, but absolutely wonderfully. He didn't go round moaning. He was far from a victim. I mean, he, he, he suffered immeasurably, and we can't really know. I mean, what is it like to be in the company of people, and even someone like myself who was privileged to be among his friends? There was this gulf, and it was, it was you know, a, a problem. Uh, which one tried to, to bridge it so that he wouldn't be so alone. And this must have been very difficult for him to be so, you know, so unique in such a different position and to have all the privations and the... I mean, for one thing, for example, in his earlier life, he was incredibly psychically sensitive. And he, he could pick up and he could know what people were thinking. Well, he decided not to know 
because it wasn't helpful to him. For example, how could you have someone and uh, work with someone if you would know, you know that they were about to, to do something, about to leave, about to uh, behave in a way that wasn't going to be helpful? He, he couldn't live like that. So he had to dampen his own sensitivities at times, and at other times he, he raised them. Uh, and I think there was tremendous psychological difficulties, but I think he dealt with them, and I know he dealt with them absolutely wonderfully, and he had a great sense of humor, and this helped immeasurably. He was a very witty person and, and, and could do, tell a fantastic tale uh, using accents and voices, and, and he, he got through uh, in, in, in any number of ways. He found ways of dealing with it, and, and I think he was so positive i mean this comes over from his lectures as well which people can listen to he had this tremendous positive view at heart even though he had faced and faced up to the worst depravities of humanity he was aware of them and dealt with them and he was working with them but he still had this positive vision and for example he had tremendous faith in people often he was let down by people and at times by all of us to some degree, and disappointed, but he didn't let it stop him. He kept on, and hence he left the Ethereum Society with such a fantastic legacy because he trusted us with it. And, and you, you, you mentioned that um, you know, he, he, he was very obviously very determined. He kept on despite all the odds. And yes. that cosmic avatars have different missions to perform. Um, mm. I know this is a difficult question, but what was Dr. King's mission or missions in a nutshell? Well, he, yes, he, he had um, a mission um, which was not restricted, uh, I can say this, just to the physical plane. And some of it he wasn't able to talk about in public at all. And so it's not for me to talk in too much detail about that in public. But he was a warrior by instinct. He, he described himself as a born fighter. And one of the things that he, he dealt with even before the Ethereum Society was founded was psychic self-defense and exorcism. And he actually was an absolute expert in that field. And he did many works, which some of which are known and some of which I'm sure none of us know about, on the inner planes. He traveled through the planes and he learned astral projection you know i often think when you look at some of the great there aren't many but some of the great yogis i don't believe he was the only cosmic avatar even of the 20th century i believe two others uh, would be swami sivananda and gandhi and when you look at say those two you'll find that swami sivananda devoted much of his earlier life anyway, to studying medicine, which was extremely demanding, and he qualified in that. And Gandhi, of course, trained as a lawyer. Uh, Dr. King, and it's interesting to study his early life because he was almost forced in this direction through life, he trained on the inner planes, in the psychic planes, on the spiritual planes, so he was already uh, an exponent of things like astral projection before the Ethereum Society started, before he was contacted, and this is an area which he worked in extensively, not just to the higher planes, but also to the lower planes. So that's one aspect of his mission. Another aspect of his mission was, of course, the 
the, the salvation, if you like, and enlightenment of humanity on the physical plane and beyond through teaching. This was a, he would call that a lesser part of his mission, but he did it brilliantly. And through establishing, and this is more important even than the teaching, certain missions. And I, I would have to say that one of his main focuses always was the planet. I mean, he was talking strongly about ecology, for example, in the very early 1970s, when it wasn't commonly accepted or known or discussed. And he was looking at it from a spiritual point of view and from the point of view of the Mother Earth. He was completely committed and had this undefying love for the Mother Earth. And he devised various missions, which we still perform today, and performed some that we don't perform today because they were just given to him to do, and they would be primarily for the Mother Earth and secondly for humanity as a whole. Now, I, I, I know that um, we've covered this to some extent, that uh, you know, he was both a man and a master at mm. the same time, and that in some ways people didn't know necessarily how to treat him in different situations uh, in that respect um, but there does seem to be a tendency uh, in certain people's minds to depersonalize great masters to think that a great master because they're a great master they don't have problems they don't yep. have feelings even and that everything's easy for them because they are a great master and I was wondering if you could just say a few words to, to really reinforce the fact that that is, is definitely not the case with any master uh, and was certainly not the case with Dr. King. Absolutely. I think you've, you've raised some very important points there and I, uh, I think you've hit the nail absolutely on the head. And it was that kind of attitude that he absolutely loathed. I mean, he, he felt sometimes, uh, even by his own, some of his own followers who he loved, that they were treating him almost like a robot. They thought, well, he's a master, so he can do this, he can do that. And you find it with other masters, and you'll find people, for example, with the, with the Master Jesus, talking about his, his dreadful uh, death, crucifixion, as though it was a wonderful thing. It's even been given the name the Passion, and as if he didn't feel the gruesome pain. The whole point of that was the pain he felt. And in a way, Dr. King had a long and prolonged crucifixion because he he wasn't among people of his kind um he, he and he made the best of it but he wasn't among people of his kind and he was in under you know very basic extremely coarse situations for a being of that caliber and he definitely felt pain he felt physical pain more than the average person would feel it because he was sensitive. But those people who've had psychic experiences at all will know that actually they sensitize you. You don't feel it less, you feel it more. And of course he was super sensitive. So he felt the physical pain, he felt the emotional pain, uh, he felt the disappointment, and he was let down much more than he should have been. Uh, the frustration... Um, you know, some people, he would say of himself that he was short-tempered at times. But as a matter of fact, given the situation he was in, he was incredibly patient. 
Um, and you know, you could see the frustration in him and the difficulties. But what I noticed was a point you picked up on. He was resolute. I mean, I remember very, very difficult times for him uh, in, in, you know, in his ethereal society life. I and mean, there's no secret. I mean, any organisation goes through difficulties, goes through personnel difficulties at times, and has different difficult problems. And he was a hands-on founder president. He didn't just stay in the background and delegate. He was involved in the major decisions, all of the major decisions, and got involved in the problems. And yet, even when he was back up against it, I've been with him. I've been called over, for example, to America at at, at less than 24 hours notice to help with certain problems. And it was absolutely obvious to me that no matter what happened and what anybody said and what anybody did, he was going to continue, carry on, even if he did it alone. There was never any question he would do it alone, by the way. But he was absolutely resolute. He had that spirit. And uh, this, was, this was just highly inspiring. It was also sad, in a way, to see. But it was very inspiring indeed. Uh, and, and I'm sure the same thing applied. I think another very important point you made there, which I agree with completely, is the difference. There's, there tends to be an idea that all avatars, all masters are the same. They're all gentle or they're all this or they're all... They are not. There's more char- they have more character and personality, if that's the word, than we ordinary people do, if you like. And, and there's an enormous difference, for example, between a master like the Master Jesus and uh, another master like um, Moses, um, to name t- another two biblical masters who were avatars. And there was this tremendous different approach. And he revered, for example, the master Jesus so much that I mean, he could be reduced to tears by a cosmic transmission from the master Jesus. Um, but he had a different approach. He didn't compare himself for one minute with the Master Jesus, uh, I might, we might compare him, but he wouldn't compare himself. But he was, they were very different person, personas. They had their own magic, their own emphasis, and, and some masters will be here, like the Master Jesus was, to demonstrate love in its purest form, emotional control, if you like. And you'll have another master, and Dr. King would be more inclined towards this, who was more, if you like, logical, scientific, if you like, in their approach, uh, both aspects of the great truth, but different. So that's a very important point, I think. So to to go more into specifics about um, Dr. King's life and his mission and how he chose to carry his uh, mission out, um, Mm -hmm. he, of course, um, had his first contact with a being from another planet in 1954, and started talking about this publicly, as I understand it, very soon thereafter, um, which must have been, in the 1950s, just the most extraordinary thing to do. Um, And I was wondering if, Richard, you could explain in a bit more depth about those early days for Dr. King and Mm. how you think he might have coped with um, a very doubting audience at that time he um had and and before we go any further i don't know whether you're there penny but are we due to have a break at any point in this hour 
Looks like Penny isn't there, so we won't have a break. Yes, we'll we are due on. to have a break. We were just waiting oh. on you guys. <laughs> okay, fine. All right, well, well, we'll be about five more minutes, if that's okay with you. That's perfectly okay. Thank you. So, um, Do- Dr. King, um, as you were asking there, he had this, he had a strange combination, which he had complete and total confidence, which came from knowledge. He knew who he was. He knew uh, the contacts he had. And even when, in 1954, he had the first contact uh, called The Command, um, he was already a master of yoga. And so he'd entered samadhi already. And it's quite clear from seeing even his early notes and his early records prior to this, from he had a, a healing circle and, he, and they kept notes and they, there was a number of um, tr- uh, messages that were received mediumistically by himself and also others in his group, that his attitude to meditation, for example, was starkly different from most people's attitude then or even now in that he, he knew that, that, that it could be an incredibly elevated state. So he had that complete confidence and certainty and knowledge. Combined with that, though, was a person who wasn't a natural extrovert in general company. I mean, he didn't like the platform. It wasn't his sort of favorite thing to go on the radio or go on television or, or even give talks. He certainly liked giving addresses and so on to uh, his close followers and, and friends. And, but by inclination, and he's been quite open about this, he would have preferred to have had a small group around him of, dedi- of dedicated spiritual students, dedicated to spirituality of a relative advancement. And that would have suited him better. But his mission was such that he had to go out to the public, and as you rightly say, in 1950s England, a very sceptical, a very conservative with a small c uh, environment, and put out this very difficult message in the public, which he did. And so I think you, you, you had, I'm sure it was difficult for him, because his nature, even when I knew him, he wasn't a naturally gregarious person with lots of people and so on. But by the same token, he, I think what would have kept him going, to answer your, your question, there would have been this inner confidence, this absolute certainty and knowledge that it was true, not based on theory, not based even on faith, because he didn't really take that sort of faith-based approach, but based on his own inner realization and logic. And perhaps at that point, Penny, we could hand over to you for the break. All righty. You are listening to Ethereus Radio Live with host Richard Lawrence and special guest Mark Bennett discussing Dr. George King, Cosmic Avatar. The Ethereus Radio Live show reminds us that the world is on the verge of great change. Never before has spirituality been more important both on a global or personal level. Tune in monthly for the truth about many things, such as karma, UFOs, the Mother Earth, the New World, the Next Master, and more. International broadcasters, authors, and Ethereum Society members Richard Lawrence and Chrissy Blaze invite you to discover the cosmic message for this age, revealed through legendary master of yoga and world-renowned medium Dr. George King between 1954 and 1997. 
Ethereus Radio Live is your cosmic connection the third Tuesday of each month, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Central, 11 a.m. Mountain, 10 a.m. Pacific, and 18 GMT. You can connect with Ethereus Society by visiting their website at www.ethereus.org. And now we return to you to your host, Richard Lawrence, with special guest, Mark Bennett, discussing Dr. George King, Cosmic Avatar. Richard? I just mentioned, by the way, that the reason we picked this particular day to speak about this is because Dr. King's birth date is January the 23rd in two days' time. He was born on January the 23rd, 1919. And throughout the Ethereum Society, by the way, we're holding a number of services in commemoration of that uh, on this, this coming Sunday, the 26th. So whatever area you're in, whether it be Michigan, whether it be in the United Kingdom or in New Zealand or wherever you Africa or Europe, if you have a local headquarters, branch or group, and they're all on www.ethereus.org, you can find out details of those activities on Sunday the 26th of January. Mark. Richard, um I just there's 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 one there's one other topic that I'd like to go into in a bit more depth and that is uh, Dr. King's daily life. Uh, mm. not in terms so much of his work but the normal things that we all have to worry about like where he lived, uh where he bought his clothes, what kind of clothes he wore, what he ate, mm. what he drank, all that kind of thing. I mean, did he live an extremely austere life or a very extravagant life or or, or how, how did that all work? Yes, thank you for that because I've never been asked that in any interview before and it's a very interesting thing I think to people. It's uh first thing I'd say about that is you with Dr. King his claims were and are extremely radical, extremely futuristic, um, extremely, inverted commas, far out, and especially when he started making them in the 1950s. And you might think, and then he went off to California and so on, that he led a very exotic sort of a life and a a very um, almost trendy kind of uh, later on hippie-ish life you might assume being in california in the 60s and so on and you'd be very wrong he was you know extremely conservative with a small c He, he wasn't a great one for any political approach being the answer by the way so i don't mean it politically but in his life he was a very conservative quite uh staid um person he would in terms of his clothing which you ask about for example it was quite an effort to get him to spend money on clothes at all, or shoes. When he did buy shoes, he would tend to buy exactly the same shoes as he bought before. And I know that because I know the firm that he bought them from, which was in in the United Kingdom, and whenever he was running out, he'd have three or four pairs, perhaps, of that particular shoe on the go for years. And then when he needed some more, he'd get a couple more of that particular shoe again. And I do remember that firm at one point changed the shape of that shoe. And he was quite upset, you know, because he'd got used to this shoe over the decades. And uh, he even wanted us to sort of find out why that they changed. And so that gives you a little illustration into the way his approach. And I suppose what's what it summarizes is this stuff wasn't really really important to him he was smart though uh, he, you know he could be smart I mean he was never um, 
untidy in his dress. Uh, he, he could be casual. He, he could wear um, clothes which are suited to, to, wear it to boating or to whatever it might be. But if there was any kind of formal occasion at all, he was always a jacket and tie person pretty much. Maybe at home he'd take his tie off. And, and first, certainly when I first got to know him, which was in the 1970s, and I first had the privilege of eating at the, the table with him uh, in the evening, we would be expected to wear jacket and tie at an ordinary evening dinner. And we could, might remove jacket and tie, might tell us to, but we'd always start the evening out. So very, very traditional. I remember dining with him uh, out in a, in a, in a uh, restaurant, uh, actually up in, uh, I think it was in Yorkshire on this particular occasion, uh, and we went there himself, um, one of his close disciples, Raymond Nielsen, and myself, and he said, let's wear dinner dress. And that would be in the early 1980s, I would say, that late, and just having dinner out in a, in a, at a good restaurant, but he, we wore dinner dress, which in those days wasn't unheard of, but was unusual by then. Um, he would wear blue blazer often at formal occasions and tie. He had tweed jackets. He, um, once again, if he was getting a new jacket, he might not get one for a long time, and then he'd get perhaps two or three. And so he didn't want to go clothes shopping. He didn't want to spend time doing that at all. Um, and sometimes he'd keep trousers, have them darned, and, ha- and, you know, and he'd, he'd become quite affectionate about an old pair of clothing. Likewise with his vehicles. He was a great lover. He'd been um, an expert driver. And also uh, he understood cars and the mechanics of cars. But his car, the last car he had, which is a Buick, he kept, I believe I'm right in saying, for 15 years. He didn't keep changing his cars. He wanted them maintained. It was a decent car. He lived relatively modestly. He, he had a bungalow in, in Santa Barbara in California, which his wife still has. Uh, it was relatively modest, and there weren't lots and lots of rooms in it. But they were all used by the people who were staying and helping him there. Um, he had a very small apartment at the headquarters in Los Angeles, indeed, and a very tiny apartment here in London at the headquarters, where I'm speaking from now. Uh, and, if I might never just interject for, for one mm, moment. Please when, do. when I first went to Santa Barbara and had the privilege of seeing his bungalow there, and I'd understood that this is possibly, correct me if I'm wrong, possibly the place where he was most relaxed uh, yes. as a general rule and happiest. This was his nicest uh, place to be. Mm. Um, and I have to admit, I was shocked uh, mm-hmm. at how small it was and how modest mm-hmm. it was. Um, yeah. I remember that the, the bathroom was, was tiny. I mean, mm-hmm. there was literally only enough room to walk in uh, and get in the bath basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his bedroom um, was a very, very ordinary room with very ordinary lighting, a very ordinary wardrobe. And um, I I was really quite taken aback because I'd seen his flat in London, of course, and Mm -hmm. I knew that that was very small and modest, but I'd, I'd sort of kind of figured, well, he was only there temporarily. And that was one thing. But to see, you know, the place that he valued the most in terms mm. of you know a place to, to relax uh, uh, and work undisturbed to, to see such a small bungalow w- was really quite an eye opener and really was proof to me if I needed proof um, that he he just was not materialistic at all. He wasn't. No, he lived for his work. Um, he he did 
liked to be and was presentable. Um, he didn't go out much to eat or to, to do much, you know, go out for entertainment reasons. He wasn't really much into entertainment. He did like watching television, certain kinds of programs sometimes. Uh, and he did do that, especially as he got older, more regularly. But he's always had his mind on other things, even when he was watching them. He could be thinking about work or some project. or uh, he, he always had his mind on several things at once. And he was did always he on hobbies? the go. Yes, he, he had one of his hobbies uh, earlier on was shooting. Um, he liked boating, uh, but used his hobbies on the whole, um, and shooting would be a, a, an exception in, uh, really to this, uh, in terms of what he did on the physical world. He, he used his hobbies as, as part of his mission. So boating was something that he liked doing, and he was very much keen on this, but he used boats in the missions of the Aetherius Society. Um, so it was also relevant uh, to what he was doing. He, he became interested in later in life, which in a way you could call a hobby. It was also uh, a sort of voluntary charitable thing and a, and, and a spiritual thing. Well, chivalry took an interest in this. It was kind of a hobby, but it was also part of his work. Um, so he would, he would always sort of turn things into something productive. I think what he couldn't stand was some things that just led to nothing and, and made no difference. So, so what about holidays, for example? Photography, is also, I should mention, is another hobby um, uh, that he had but used, and, and camera work, used, again, in, in keeping a record of the Aetherius Society and missions and so on. Yes, he holidays was something that he, and I think anyone who knew him at all knows this, found very difficult. It was not his favorite thing at all. It, I, it was, and he, he understood this. Um, he was advised on occasions by cosmic masters who spoke through him, including one we've mentioned on Aetherius Radio Live many times, the Master Aetherius, to take a break. And he found this difficult. He, he would have to almost find a, another reason as well as the holiday. And then perhaps he could get himself into it. Um, he would go, for example, again on a boat trip. But while he was on that boat trip, say on the Thames in England, he'd be training um, people who were with him in the handling of boats, which they could then use in a mission. Um, he would, I, I remember going on many little short breaks with him, uh, in, in, in when he was in England and, and, and also in America. And he'd go away, but while he was away, he might, for example, take a mental transmission in the hotel where we were staying. So he didn't just come back having just had a holiday. I think that was something that he found, and I think he, he knew that, alien to him. It's just something that was very difficult. And I think being in this earth physical body, which needs some kind of a rest, was alien to him and something that he wrestled with tremendously because where he was coming really came from he wouldn't have had that limitation and he didn't deserve it i have to say um the more i meet people and uh, read the works of good spiritual teachers and you know observe the lives of of great people throughout history um and indeed ordinary people um, the more I just feel um, reassured, if that's the right word, that um, Dr. King really was one of a kind. He, I think you're right. Pe people just aren't like that. Even no. if, 
you don't believe his claims. Just his lifestyle alone and the way he seemed utterly fearless in the face of doubt and ridicule and hardship and in the early days extreme poverty um, and a terrible lack of support considering what he was doing. He, he, he just carried on uh, in a way that, that, that appears to be undaunted. Uh, and yes. people just, just, just aren't like that in the world, in my Absolutely, experience. completely true. I agree with all that you've said. I mean, the ridicule, he didn't like. Uh, it, it did affect him, but it, you're absolutely right. It didn't, for a moment, stop him. On the contrary, his psyche was such that it would almost fire him up all the more because he was a fighter through and through. So if he met opposition, rather than wilting, uh, his natural inclination was to fight all the more. But it still was difficult for him. Uh, I'm not going to say it wasn't. It still affected him. Uh, but you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, I used to think to myself, because obviously if you go around, and we didn't go around in his lifetime saying this, but if you believed that somebody was from an, another world, and, I, and I, I believed it and I witnessed it, um, you know, this sounds absolutely mad and absolutely crazy, but if you'd been around him, it sounds it to a lot of people, perhaps not listeners of Ethereum Radio Live, but if you'd been around him, his, you've hit the nail on the head there, Mark, because his reactions were not the reactions of a human being, even in small things. He just didn't respond in a way that people on this earth respond. He had to almost be um, sort of told about it. And he, could, he knew because he understood humanity, probably better than we understand ourselves, certainly better than we understand ourselves at the deeper levels and the karmic levels. But it was still different from the way he operated, the way he thought, the way he functioned. You know, he wasn't yes, craving the next holiday. He just, it, that to him was not an enticement at all. Or, or craving, craving adoration, like it seems no, that, um, not that many, many no. so-called gurus do. Um, I mean, what it, he didn't it, want, yes, you're right, and he did, in fact, on the contrary, he didn't want that kind of adoration and, uh, and dedication, especially from certain people. I mean, I know myself, I, I remember he told me off on one occasion for, for raising a toast to him, and it was only himself and his dear wife and me present. And I raised a glass to him and said, it's, it's an honor, and I really meant this, and I still do, to be among your followers. And he, he was quite upset, you're not my follower. He didn't want me to be, a, he said, you're my friend, you're my bishop, you're my, you know, he didn't want that from me. And another occasion, I was giving him healing, and I don't think I'm the only one who did it, who's done this. And, and to get to be able to give him healing, because he was in bed at the time, poorly, I knelt down, and I only knelt down to get a good position, and he, he said, don't kneel down in front of me. I don't want you. The only time I ever knelt in front of him in my life was on the, uh, other than on occasion when he was giving a blessing or an initiation, was the last time I physically was in his presence when he told me to. He didn't want that uh, from certainly people because what he was wrestling with was this aloneness. It wasn't... Um, you know, the need for adoration and civility, far from it, no. 
So now the, these are wonderful and amazing insights and memories that are unique to yourself and a small group of others who were privileged to know him and work closely with him and, and be his friends. What would you say to people like me who never had that privilege of even meeting him, n never mind actually working with him? I would take my hat off to people like you, Mark, because you're doing something that we didn't do. I think in some ways you might think, gosh, you know, you can look at the, the difficulties that we encountered and perhaps think that's pretty good. But I can also look at you, someone like yourself and others, and take my hat off to you for dedicating yourself to him in every respect as a full devotee, disciple, whatever term you wish to make, of this master and demonstrating that you don't have to have physically seen him, you don't have to have met him to be close to him. I've, I've met a lot of people over the years who knew him, physically knew him, and a lot of people over the years who never met him, and some who came across him after he'd passed on physically. And I would say some of those who've come across him, and you're one, after he'd passed on, are actually closer to him than some of those who physically knew him and physically met him. Uh, well, and I think very kind of that's, you to say. That's what I would say, because I think, you know, you demonstrate it by what you do and what some others do. You demonstrate your closeness to him, because he was only looking, or always looking mainly anyway, for one thing, and that was actions. He was a man of action, and what he was looking for was people who did things. This was much more important to him than you know how they spoke or uh, you know what they what they wrote or all that sort of thing uh, he wanted to see what people did and it's the people who live the pattern he left who are the people who are his disciples not the people who talk about it or even remember this and that but the people who do it that's what i would say well that's very encouraging to hear uh, richard i'd like to to add to that that um this this might sound strange, but I mean sometimes, you know, as you know, as someone who's devoted their lives to um, his teachings and his legacy, uh, of course, um, I and others, we find ourselves thinking about him a lot. Um, mm. We see pictures of him, we hear him giving lectures, um, we see uh, video footage of him, and so forth. And each of these things are little clues. To, 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 you know, to this great person, this great character, uh, multifaceted person um, who, who was so different to, to anyone else, really, in, in, uh, in recent history, at least. And sometimes it, it really gets to the point where I almost forget that I didn't meet him. Because when you spend so long thinking about someone, and often there are things which... I don't quite get that he, he does or, or that he did or said um, that don't quite make sense to me. And in the, when I first came across the Ethereum Society, this was obviously a problem that gave rise to doubt. But as time grew on, I learned that those doubts were really just the result of my own lack of understanding. Because I, as I pursued the answers to those questions, I found that the answers did indeed exist uh, and were logical 
and um, it's just that you you continue to do this sort of as long as you don't put up a barrier against learning. Well, I don't understand that about the master, so I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to pretend Mm -hmm. that part of him didn't exist. I think that's a very dangerous way to go. Very dangerous. One has to... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If 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 you look at everything as you see it, uh, and then try to make sense of it in due humility that he was a master, he knew what he was doing, and we don't really fully understand masters, um, then I think you can really begin to develop a very close spiritual uh, guru-disciple relationship with this great avatar. Well, that's great, and you can say that in a way that I can't, because I... I can say things that you can't, but you can say that with an authority that I can't because I did know him and I was close to him and I still am close to him. And by the way, don't think that those who knew him didn't wonder too sometimes and didn't question too various things sometimes. And what I've found actually in the years since his passing are just how right he was about everything. And I'll often think, gosh, that's why he said that. That's why he did this. Things that I couldn't see at the time have become yeah. much clearer that, to me since he's passed that, on. Yeah, that's something that I, I can attest to, actually, is having worked very closely with you, Richard, over the past mm. decade or so. Mm. Um, is Time and again, there, there have been these things uh, mm. that, that he's either that he's said or examples of the way he's acted that don't really seem to have either maybe they seem to make sense at the time but that maybe don't seem relevant now mm-hmm. and then something will come up which proves that they are mm. relevant now that's true that's true and I mean I don't think he put a foot wrong I mean there were little things little things where he might get little details wrong like a date or like a, a little situation which didn't really matter, and he was focused on a big picture, and so little unimportant things. If they were at all important, then I, I observed when he was alive, he'd always put them right. Uh, and by important, I don't mean world-changing, because I don't think he made errors of that nature at all, ever. But things to do with, I don't know, the people or certain situations, he would always put them right if there was anything needed putting right. And he was a master enough to do that, and he did it in his own way. And if people had the faith they should have had, uh, then everything would be always balanced out by him perfectly. Uh, but in the big picture, I, I, and I realize it more now than I Five did then, by the way, he, he was always right, and uh, I can't recommend strongly enough to anyone listening to this, and let's take Mark as an inspiration for this, you can become a disciple, a follower, a devotee of Dr. George King. You don't have to have known him. You can definitely do it now. And I must say, there is really nothing better. Um, there's, um, there's, some, there's, there's something that he said that I came across not long ago, which, which is like he often was, actually. Uh, it sounds very simple, deceptively simple, but has such a, a deep meaning. Um, and forgive me if I get it slightly wrong, but this is very close to the, the actual quote. There is nothing more satisfying than working for the glory of God in the service of mankind. Mm-hmm. And I think, to a large extent, that sums up his mission and when we think about 
the various uh, temptations that life has to offer, the various um, multicolored baubles of materialism that there are out there, when we really look back at what we've done and what really matters to us, you know, is it our materialistic accomplishments or is it those things that we've done for others? Uh, and to repeat that again, there is nothing more satisfying than working for the glory of God in the service of mankind. Nothing. So, you know, this is his message, and it is a true message. Um, and this is, you know, this is the life, uh, to use it a cliche. Um, because there's, there's nothing, whatever, whatever life outside may seem to have to offer, it's always hollow in the end. But a path of service, uh, and, and his path of service is incredibly profound. A path of service is not hollow in that way. It, it, is, a, it is literally the most profoundest thing. It is the deepest thing. Uh, there is no end to where it will lead you. Very well put. Very, very well put. And uh, just before we, we part, because we're coming to the end, I had a little realization working on, as I have been, on the second edition uh, of Contacts with the Gods from Space. And that's the book that I was privileged to co-author with Dr. King. It's the last, uh, there's two actually, but that's the last book that was published in his lifetime. And so I worked with him on all the details and, 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 and it was published. And the title, of course, was selected by him, Contacts with the gods from space to summarize his mission but i realized in working on this of course there's another title it could have had mark which is contact with a god from space or <laughs> contact with a god from space which of course was him absolutely absolutely well now would you like to give your website uh, well, I'd be very happy to. Yes, my website is www.markinfo.co.uk and uh, yours, I believe, Richard, is www.richardlawrence.co.uk. That is correct. And I want to thank you for being the guest interviewer. I think you've got a good niche there. I think you'll definitely be invited back again. That was uh, well, I look uh, forward wonderful. To yeah, good. Well, it's, a, it's been a wonderful opportunity to, to, you know, for my my first experience on a serious radio live, to be talking about such a wonderful, wonderful subject. Likewise, and thank you, and thank you to you, Penny. Thank you for having us. So I think that's wraps up our, our program. You have been listening to a serious radio live with host Richard Lawrence. Richard Lawrence is an extraordinary person with a quiver of talents and gifts honed through the lifetimes. Currently, he is a spiritual teacher, international best-selling author, and executive serious society for Europe and Africa. You can connect with him at www.richardlawrence.co.uk. Back to you, Richard. Well, thank you very much, Penny, and I think that wraps up another edition of Ethereus Radio Live. So it just remains for us to advise everyone to study uh, Dr. George King and connect with him because, as Mark has illustrated, you didn't have to physically know him to really get to know him. And perhaps, Richard, you could tell us what we have to look forward to in the next episode with you and Chrissy. Well, yes, the next episode we're carrying on with the fourth freedom. We're going through the nine freedoms, and that is enlightenment, and that is... Well, it's, it, although I have much to learn, it's my absolute favorite of favorite subjects, enlightenment. 
wonderful stuff. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Are you going to say something? How do we end? Oh.